0: Hello, everyone. This is A.J. Woodham's host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war related topics. Uh, Today, I am so excited to have on Mark Gagliotti for his new book, Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Uh, Mark Gagliotti is a scholar of Russian security affairs with a career spanning academia, government service and business. He is the prolific author of over 25 books, and he has the Mike Intelligence Consultancy. He is also an honorary professor at University College London School of Slavonic and East European Studies, and he holds numerous fellowships and is taught at many universities. Mark, how are you today?
2: I'm fine. I'm fine. As I, I mentioned before, before we, we went on Mike. Tell end of a cold, so I apologize to you oh. and our listeners if at times I, I croak and wheeze a little. No, that's okay.
0: Uh, sounds great on my end, but we're all warned. Now, something that... Um, so we you had mentioned to me, speaking of your bio, uh, you had mentioned to me that uh, you had traveled to Boston for an award. Is that right?
2: Yes, that's right. The Fletcher School's
0: Russia program at Tufts University
2: were kind enough to pick Putin's Wars as their best book of the year on Russian-US relations. And in some ways it's a pretty depressing but probably accurate reflection of relations that a book about war actually becomes regarded as the most salient book on on US Russian
0: relations but but there you go well congratulations to you for that Thank you. award Thank you. uh we'll we'll append that to your bio um but yeah uh, i guess you know it's um not a topic that um you know it's 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 not a, a positive topic maybe but your book like I, I mentioned uh, to you, I really liked, and I, I, it was very informative. I'm not a Russia expert. And I remember back in, in early 2021, uh, I was reading a news article, and it talked about how, how the U.S. was warning Ukraine of a Russian buildup on its border. And I was like, "What? like, and like, uh, and then, then of course Russia invades Ukraine. And I'm like, how did this happen? You know, where did this come from? And I thought your book did an excellent job of answering the question kind of, you know, how did this happen? How did we get to this point? So very well done. Thank you. Maybe, Yeah, maybe first just, just tell me, why did you choose to write this book?
2: I mean, I chose to write it and remember, obviously, such, such is the nature of you know production schedules and writing schedules that this was envisaged between myself and Osprey, the publishers, at a time when we didn't actually expect there to be this kind of a conflagration taking place. Instead, it was in some ways a reflection of the degree to which it had become clear that war fighting was a central element of Putin's vision of what a great power was. You know, he's, he's not some sort of hippie 21st century soft power and connectivity and such like guy. No, he's a very 19th century geopolitician, that a great power is, is in, in part, at least in large part, measured by its capacity to intimidate and if need be coerce other powers to doing what it wants. And I suppose it just, it was reaching the point where, you know, we're starting to talk about late Putinism, a sense that sort of almost what creative capacities there were within the Putin era. And we have to recognize that. I mean, without in any way um, trying to exonerate him for what he's done, we have to recognize that the first two terms of Putin's presidential career were actually, for Russia, very successful. It's... These third and fourth, which have been so catastrophic. But so anyway, it, it seemed to be that we are on sort of the, the downward curve of that arc. And we could actually sort of say something more general about Putin, his political career and the way his vision of Russia has been so centrally underpinned by the notion of war. I mean, in all the period in which he's been either president or president behind the scenes, well, notionally prime minister, 23 years so far. Only
0: three of those years was Russia not, in effect, at war. Yeah, uh, and that's um, you know from your book. So the the wars that you, I've got them listed out here. The wars that you you talk about: uh, Chechnya, Georgia, Crimea, Donbass, Syria, Ukraine. Um, I I knew almost nothing about Chechnya and and Georgia. Uh, obviously, Crimea was a very that was a very famous. That was a very well-known event when that happened, um, but yeah, I you're you're right that for almost his entire uh, presidency, or for when he's been calling the shots, Russia's been at war or they've been preparing for war, um, which I, I found very insightful. Uh, let's maybe just kind of start with those first um, those first two wars that you talk about in your book, uh, Chechnya and Georgia. Although I think you talk about Yugoslavia a little bit too. Um, but maybe let's let's start with uh, Chechnya because that was really Putin's first um, war. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just just real quick talk about how did this war start? Um, you know, how did it begin? What what was going on in Russia at the time when when this started? And I think there are actually two Chechnya wars.
2: There are, I mean, and this is it's a very dangerous question to ask someone who considers himself primarily historian, because precisely I, I, I want to, you know, if, you, if you ask when it starts, I want to say, well, 200 years ago. I mean, but suffice to say that the Chechens, um, a particular people of the North Caucasus region, right in the south of Russia, very fierce, very strong reputation for being independently minded. They were brought into the rule of the Russian Empire in the 19th century and essentially had periodically rebelled whenever they felt that there was an opportunity. Stalin, being Stalin, adopted a rather maximalist response to this. And during the Second World War, almost entirely over over one night, he had the whole Chechen population rounded up and removed by force and scattered across Kazakhstan, Central Asia, and and Siberia, a process in which a large number of them died. And it was only after Stalin's death that they could actually return home. But still, one can understand quite why the Chechens for a long time looked for their opportunity. Now, in the 1990s, before Putin's reign under Boris Yeltsin, when frankly the Russian state was very, very weak, they spotted an an opportunity under former Soviet Air Force commander called Dudayev. They declared independence. Yeltsin wasn't willing to allow that to happen because he was afraid that this, what is after all, a a multi-ethnic land empire could possibly fragment if he seemed to be perfectly capable of just simply waving goodbye to the Chechens. And what happened was from the Russians' point of view, a disastrous, catastrophic blunder. The Chechens proved to be not just very tough, and let's be perfectly honest, I mean, from my perspective and my very first uh, research, uh, In my doctoral program, I I did my my thesis on the impact of the Soviet-Afghan war. Well, frankly, tough as the Afghans are, frankly, I think the Chechens would more than give them a run for their money. And what happened is, in effect, tiny little Chechnya, by virtue of how it fought as guerrillas on the battlefield and also by launching terrorist attacks within Russia, essentially forced Moscow to a draw. Now, that wasn't a situation that could be allowed to continue. And so even before Putin was president, when he was still prime minister, briefly, he was responsible for rolling into place the start of a new campaign, a much bigger, more properly arranged one. And one also in which, and you mentioned that you hadn't really sort of know much about it, the state made a much greater effort to control the narrative and limit who actually could go and report. It was a very, very brutal, I mean, civil wars tend to be, but even by the standards of civil wars, we saw the capital of, of Chechnya sort of leveled in the same sort of way that we're now seeing Ukrainian cities being being sort of hammered flat.
0: That, would, that I think that was the one thing I knew about Chechnya is mm-hmm. that it was devastating um, to, to uh, the cities that were in Chechnya.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, and this is the thing: it doesn't matter if we're talking Aleppo in Syria or, you know, Mariupol in, and now Bakhmut in in Ukraine. Unfortunately, where where the Russian military goes, they tend not to have
0: compulsion compunctions about uh, doing this kind of damage. The first so the first Chechnyan conflict was in 1995, 1996.
2: Yeah, this is the awful thing. Uh, Yes. I mean, unfortunately, please try not to test me too much on dates. That's (laughs) my absolute (laughs) blind spot numbers. I I always have trouble remembering. Yes, exactly. I'll I'll stick to that. No, I mean, but so, you know, after that, so Putin launches this war and, you know, the Russians win, but they win very much by Chechenizing the conflict, by by finding Chechens who are willing to fight for them, you know, in return for power and money and, and everything else. And and so, you know, they, they 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 managed to this time sort of defeat the Chechens, which allows Putin to basically show that after a decade in which actually the Russian Federation seemed to be falling apart and into chaos, now we have a proper leader, one who is actually willing to reverse the process, fix the rot, and reassert the power of the state. So, yes, absolutely. As to go back to the point you made before – it's, this is a
0: war which is also quite central to the building of the Putin myth. And so this war then, uh, being Putin's first war, what are, what are, so you talked about just like total devastation of the cities, what are some of the other maybe hallmarks of how he wages this war?
2: Well, I mean, to a large extent, interestingly, unlike the, mo- the more recent conflict in, in Ukraine, we see that Putin is willing to let the generals do the generaling. I mean, Putin basically sets the political objective, which is bringing Chechnya back into the fold. He makes sure that there are the sufficient resources which are available. And indeed, this is a much, much better resourced war than the first Chechen war. He is you know, plays a crucial role in creating the political context for both victory and a, a post-war settlement. But essentially, he does not try to micromanage. He does not try to do that sort of thing. And, and this is something that we've seen in most of his wars, right up until the most recent. And the other point is, look, I mean, although clearly the Chechens demonstrated extraordinary success in the 1990s, but nonetheless, when it comes down to it, there was never much of a doubt. I mean, again, unlike the most recent war, another hallmark has always been that Putin picks relatively soft targets. He does not, I mean, you know, for all his macho posturing, he is not a risk taker he's actually quite timid and um, tends to sort of also agonize over, over major des- decisions. So in this case, absolutely. You know,
0: he, he picked a fight, but he picked a fight that ultimately he knew he should be able to win. So maybe talk a little bit about the differences between Chechnya and Georgia. So there's a seven-ish year uh, time span in between these two wars. First, talk about Georgia and, and how that came about.
2: Well, I mean, Georgia, it's a small and independent uh, country, which was part of the Soviet Union. And like so many of the post-Soviet states, probably with the, you know, I think probably the only exceptions really being the, the Baltic states. As far as Putin is concerned, they were independent, but only up to a point. See Putin's notions of great power, and again, I, I go back to this. It's very it's a nineteenth-century notion, and I say nineteenth-century rather than eighteenth or seventeenth because nineteenth-century was also the heyday of the colonial imperial era. And I think, you know, as far as Putin is concerned, you know, a great power has a sphere of influence. It has other countries whose sovereignty is subordinate to the centre. It's not that he actually necessarily wants to run these countries, but that he feels that they have to realise that they are essentially Moscow's. Um, this is very, this notion, very much a notion that the world can be divided between those countries that genuinely have agency and those countries whose fate is really to be like, I don't know, squares on, on a game board. And the only question is who actually owns them. And if you don't, then someone else will. So from Georgia's point of view, you had Georgia was very much uh, moving towards closer integration with the West wanting to join NATO, wanting to connect up with the European Union. The Georgians had you know, was, were sending forces to go and work with uh, Americans and, and indeed were, were clearly trying to actually Americanize their own military. And I think from Putin's point of view, and this technically comes in the period when he's not president but prime minister, but in practice he, he, he was still running things behind the scenes, this was unacceptable for two reasons. One is that, that Georgia itself should not believe that it can break away Especially under a, a firebrand president called Mikhail Saakashvili, who was very, very hostile to and critical of Putin personally. But also, there was an issue just as Chechnya was in part about showing the other regions of the Russian Federation, you do not try and even think about breaking away. Well, so too with Georgia, it was a sense of it was a good opportunity to show the other post Soviet states this is what happens if you go against Moscow. So, you know, it was basically a question of just generating a conflict to allow Moscow to put its foot down and demonstrate that it can cause trouble for anyone who tries to move away from its orbit.
0: Yeah, and it's really interesting because to me, I'm thinking the differences between Chechnya and Georgia, the major difference is that Georgia is its own independent state. But Putin does not see it that way. So from his point of view, they're actually very similar in the sense that they both are kind of, you know, under the Russian umbrella. And I, I think one of the things, too, that you get from your book a lot is the, the West doesn't seem to understand Putin so much as as much as we as we say Putin doesn't understand us. And I, I mean, with Georgia, I think that that's very clear.
2: Yeah, very much. Uh, I think there was an element with the West of sometimes wishful thinking, especially when he was no longer president and his sort of proxy, Dmitry Medvedev, was there as president. And particularly, it was the Americans who, in some ways, they were trying to treat Pinocchio as if he was a real boy. And not only did this mean that they missed what was really going on, but also, actually, they deeply annoyed Putin. And it's one of the reasons why probably Putin Convinced himself he was indispensable and had to return to the presidency. There was that sense of, well, if the Americans like this Medvedev chap, then he's not the guy for Russia. But yes, exactly. As far as he's concerned, going back to Georgia, you know, Georgia is not a genuinely independent state. It has to realise that it, it, fine, it can, it can cosplay independence, so long as it doesn't actually try to use that to to break away from Moscow.
0: Yeah. And so in terms of how the, the the war, if you want to call it a war, the conflict uh, in Georgia, uh, would you call it a war? I, I don't know. It's, I guess it was um Russia's It was a war. It was a brief war,
2: but it was, mm-hmm. I mean, only really five days long in terms of the actual sort of hostilities. But no, it was definitely a war.
0: Well, how was this? So how was is, how is the war actually waged?
2: Well, the Russians were very keen to not seem to be throwing the first punch. Now, there are two small parts of Georgia which had already, in effect, largely broken away from Tbilisi, the Georgian capital's control. Abkhazia on the coast and South Ossetia, which is right up on, on the Russian border. And the South Ossetians were, were, were much more aggressive in asserting themselves uh, as independent from, from Georgia. I mean, it's something of a kind of... If you think of those Russian matryoshka dolls, I mean, Georgia is a small enough country, but even so, you open it up and you can find even smaller countries inside it. And so what happened is with the, the Russians' encouragement, the South Ossetians began a campaign really of trying to needle the Georgians into a sort of foolish first move. Now, at the same time, Mikhail Saakashvili, the Georgian president, was actually contemplating military action to try and bring South Ossetia back into the fold. And this is, you know, he's not really a man prone to half measures or spending too much time planning or thinking about things. So, you know, in a way, the Russians were pretty sure that Saakashvili was the kind of guy whom they could provoke into an unwise act. And indeed, they did. And Saakashvili sent his forces into South Ossetia. There were Russian peacekeepers in the South Ossetian capital skinvali, and they came under fire. Probably not because the Georgians wanted to, but just simply in in the the chaos of, of conflict. And then the Russians were able to say, "We are going in to restore peace. We are going in because the the Georgians have clearly sort of you know broken our understandings and they're firing on our own guys." And the, the you know the Russians had their forces all ready to roll. So again, it was one of these. Co- contests, which was no contest. I mean, Georgia, tiny country, its best troops were anyway out of the country, again, as I said, sort of basically providing support for allied uh, counterinsurgency operations. And the Russians were able to convincingly break South Ossetia and Abkhazia free, deliver some devastating damage to, to the Georgian forces, go half the way down the road to Tbilisi and then just stop, agree to a peace and withdraw. And again, it was a very performative act. It was that we could have carried on. There was no way you could have stopped us from taking Tbilisi had we wanted to. But that's not what we're about. We're just here to teach you a lesson. So, you know, it, it was uh, a five-day war. The interesting thing is, though, of course, the Russians won. I mean, there was just such a ridiculous mismatch of of forces. But on the other hand, they certainly did not win anywhere near as well as they ought. There were all kinds of catastrophic and and, and sort of clumsy blunders, ranging from airstrikes being launched against airfields that hadn't been used for, for years um, a lot of friendly fire incidents, cases of the Russian communication grid not working so that you know a general actually had to borrow a journalist's satellite phone in order to issue orders, all that kind of... Another general getting actually very, very seriously wounded because he just blundered into a group of Georgian special forces. And so in some ways, actually, there were two separate lessons that could be learned. One is, hey, the Russians are still powerful. But also, my God, though, they haven't reformed their military anywhere near to the level they should. And this is why the Georgian War, it's a very small war, but it proves absolutely crucial in terms of the history of the Russian military in that it finally forces a long overdue process of reform onto what was still at that point pretty much a shrunken Red Army rather than anything else.
0: Yeah, and I actually one of the uh, one of the the anecdotes from your book that comes to mind in terms of reforming the the army is when Russia gets a new defense minister. One of his reforms that he does is apparently Russian soldiers wore square pieces of cloth on their feet instead of socks. Mm-hmm. Talk talk about is that what? <laughs> how does that work?
2: Yeah, I mean, look. In, in in their own way these these sort of footcloths you know they kind of work but it's something that Russian soldiers have have used for centuries. The idea is that you sort of you, know, you work out quite how they it's a whole art to how you fold these things around your, your feet. And then the point is you can then at the end of each each day you can rinse them out, wash them and hang them up and they'll be dry by the morning. Now that's all very well in theory, but yes, we, we, we do have this this modern technology called the sock. But it was interesting that it actually came with a new defence minister. His predecessor, Serdyukov, had been massively unpopular with the Russian High Command, as is almost inevitable the person who's actually pushing through the reform after the Georgian War. Not least because reform also meant fewer posts for generals, so there's a lot of enforced retirement. Anyway, Serdyukov Did what he had to do politically, but unfortunately he did things that he shouldn't have done in his personal life. Got caught having an affair with the daughter of one of Putin's closest friends and allies and had to go. So in comes Sergei Shoigu. And the thing about Shoigu, who is still the current defense minister today, is he's not a career military officer. He's a very, very competent political fixer, but also he really understands what you might think of as public relations. And so you know he was clearly casting around for some very visible sign that things are changing, and yes, he he fell upon this idea of replacing footcloths with socks across the entire Russian military, which we might think of as kind of ridiculously overdue and obvious, but again, it says something about the essential conservatism of the Russian military that, you know, this is not something that the high command had, had been bothered with. And it's something that, you know, in my own conversations with, with Russian soldiers cropped up time and time again as a kind of small scale reform, but one that absolutely had a real impact on their quality of life.
0: Yeah. And I guess, I mean, it, and like you just said, it is an interesting um, kind of story to talk about. Oh, you know, the, the big reform, Form that was brought in was you know we have socks but there were uh, in all seriousness major reforms in terms mm-hmm. of, of equipment especially uh, that were brought in even just like the equipment that the soldiers used which would show up when we we get to Crimea but what were some of the other ways that that um, the Russian military had modernized after Georgia ends and, and before Crimea I mean it's even more than equipment
2: it's in organization Look, the, the Russian military up to that point had, as I said, pretty much been the Soviet military just writ smaller. And the Soviet military was always essentially built as a, as a machine for mass mobilization. You know, it was essentially still operating under the shadow of the Second World War. And that need to well, we might find ourselves in a position where we literally have to be fielding a million man army. Now, what does that require? Well, obviously, you can't have a million people under arms at the same time, too expensive and such like. But nonetheless, that's why you have conscription so that you have a huge pool of reservists who at least have had enough basic training so that they know which is the dangerous end of a Kalashnikov and who can be called up to arms in the case of a big war. And yet what was clear at the time or seemed to be clear at the time was that actually Russia didn't honestly face the threat of a big war. You know, it had a whole, this whole notion of, of war fighting was, was, was built around an increasingly mythical scenario. You know, NATO was not about to roll eastwards across the border. The Chinese, is more of a threat, but in some ways, the Chinese are just so big that, frankly, the only way you can deter them and indeed fight them back is with, nu- with nuclear weapons. So instead, what we actually see is a very, very rational. Form of, of, of reform that basically says, look, we are not going to be fighting a big war like that anymore. We are more likely to be involved in smaller, scrappier conflicts, wars of choice, which will, you know, may well involve deploying our forces quite far from our borders. And therefore, actually, we need better, smaller more flexible, more mobile forces. So, I mean, as, as one element of that, for example, the basic building block of the, of the military shifts from being the division, which is a rather large and cumbersome, but nonetheless very kind of survivable force, into the smaller brigade. So, you know, again, it's, it, it's interestingly enough, these will end up coming back to bite the Russians in Ukraine. But in the short term, if if you're thinking you're not going to be fighting a major war with, say, a country of more than 40 million people, um, actually, you know, it it allowed Russia to create, you know, rather more efficient, but nonetheless, you know, relatively smaller scale mission oriented forces, which have capacity to, as we saw, you know, take Crimea very, very efficiently fighting, you know, support an undeclared conflict in the Donbass, deploy to Syria. I mean, in all of these things, actually, one could have questioned whether pre-Georgia, the Russians could have carried them off, or certainly not with anything like the same efficiency. So, you know, it actually created the forces that could do this. But as I say, the irony is, it also created forces that would then actually be much less well suited to the kind of meat grinder conflict that they now find themselves in in Ukraine.
0: Yeah. And would it, would it be fair to say that with Syria, um, that that was, that was kind of a testing ground for them in terms of their these this new equipment and these new reforms?
2: I mean, wars always are. I mean, look, it's not that I think that this is why they went. I mean, they had a whole variety of reasons. Uh, but certainly once they had this small scale deployment in Syria, which was primarily some special forces, but mainly air, air power, it became sort of a crucial opportunity to cycle your best pilots through, but also your best air commanders through. You know, everyone wanted to punch their card. It was not only kind of very useful for your career, it also gave the Russians a chance to have a sense of, okay, well, you know, who, who's any good in, in reality rather than during the kind of choreographed exercises, which unlike Western military exercises, Russian military exercises have tended to be more about pageantry Rather than actual real sort of tests of 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 skills, so yes, they 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 tested a, a lot of equipment, including you know send, sending in, for example, you know their their new stealth fighter, uh, well, multi-role aircraft, which you know wasn't really needed in Syria, but again, it just given them a the chance to 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 put it in there. This is where they also began to to um, you know test out the use of ground-based drones, for example, little tracked robots, which haven't proved to be particularly effective. You know, but nonetheless, you know, we, we we see it as a nice kind of, and from their point of view, it's a nice contained sandbox opportunity to test out new new models, new equipment. And also finally, a new command structure or a way of, of managing their warfare. They, they have this very sort of high-tech National Defense Management Center in the deep basement of the Defense Ministry building which you know looks like any kind of command center in, in a, a sort of modern war film of your choice. You know, lots of big screens and people behind uh, computer banks and such like. But the point is, this was, was basically, you know, inaugurated right after the Crimean conflict. So Syria was its first chance to actually see how it really could manage a war that, let be honest, most in the West did not think that the Russians would be able to sustain. You know, when they actually first deployed their planes, the you know, received wisdom by a lot of Western defense analysts was actually the Russians will not be able to sustain this. Their planes will start falling out of the air because they're badly maintained. They won't be able to keep the supplies flowing or whatever. And in fairness, the Russians did actually keep all, all, all
0: that working. And that was in part because of this new command model. So let's, let's talk about then Crimea and talk about how this, this very swift uh, takeover happened.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, Crimea, obviously, it's, it's it's a very historically fraught topic, but essentially it was Russian territory until the 1950s. Then it was sort of shuffled between the Russian and Ukrainian parts of the Soviet Union. But still, from Russia's point of view, it was absolutely crucial, not least because It has historical and political roots, but essentially it's the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet, the most powerful of of, of Russia's uh, conventional fleets. And when Ukraine had its, goes by different names, the Euromaidan or the Revolution of Dignity, the end of 2013 and the beginning of 2014, which swept away a deeply corrupt regime, which to a large extent was in Moscow's pocket. What was actually an organic rising from the Ukrainians who just had had enough was perceived by Putin, who has this exceedingly sort of paranoid mindset as clearly a plot, a plot by the CIA, and I should mention MI6. It, it's always nice in, in, in the modern world to find at least someone who thinks that Britain still matters. Thanks. Anyway, so, so it was all a plot to basically, again, as he would say, it steal Ukraine away from Russia and put it into, you know, NATO's sphere of influence. So from his point of view, you know, this was unacceptable, but particularly Crimea. Crimea, which actually has a large population of ethnic Russians, who, you know, particularly like of naval, naval veterans and their families who would settled and everything else. So he very quickly said, look, we need to bring Crimea back into the fold. Now, there had been operational plans for this, for a long time, probably going back to the 1990s. But that's because, look, soldiers' jobs or military planners' jobs are to come up with responses to all the various potential scenarios that they think could happen. Anyway, so basically the the plan, the op plan, was was pulled out of the relevant drawer, uh, blown clear of dust, and they quickly moved into doing it. What was really interesting about the Crimean operation is the degree to which we saw the integration of not just military but non-military tools. You know, the, the heavy lifting for taking over the peninsula was done by the so-called little green men, or as the Russians call them, the polite people. In other words, Russian naval infantry, marines, and special forces who are just not wearing their insignia and such like, which so much was made of that. Well, I, I heard Some of, kind of you know, I had, novel tactic... <laughs>
0: I had heard of the little green men and it's like some, it's one of those things I hear in the news and in your book, you know, you talk about, there's just like soldiers without insignia, but how does that, how does that work exactly?
2: Well, really, I mean, it it, it works. Let's be honest. I mean, often it's, it's not unusual for soldiers not to actually have big, big flags and badges saying what they are. It's really that in a way, the, the, the ruthlessly cunning tactic that the Russians used was to lie. When when this first happened, when you first actually had forces coming out of the, of the bases, because they were already there because of the Black Sea Fleet being there and starting to occupy key locations, immediately people turned to the Russians and the Russians said, nope, It's not us, nothing to do with us, mate. And in, again, we might think that's so obvious, but that is a, a major breach of what we might think of as sort of diplomatic etiquette.
0: Yeah, you're right about and how it. Was, Putin, Putin even says he he like he jokes that like maybe they bought their equipment at a surplus store. Or yeah,
2: something. exactly. Now I was actually in Moscow. I I I lived in Moscow for most of twenty fourteen. And I just out of curiosity, I duly did the rounds of all the various army surplus shops I could find. And, and surprisingly enough, none of them had latest version Ratnik military
0: kits oh, wow. that, that these guys were wearing. That's investigative yeah, exactly. reporting at its finest.
2: Absolutely quite. <laughs> and who, who'd have thunk that it turned out that, in fact, Putin was lying. But the point is, look, it, it, what that did was it gave both Kiev and the West just that hesitant moment. In which they were thinking, well, you know, could it be that there's something else? There were all kinds of weird and wonderful theories circulating that these might actually be mercenaries, or that this was some kind of maverick operation by the Black Sea Fleet that hadn't been endorsed by Moscow or whatever. But yeah, you know, but it did the job in that it gave the Russians twenty-four to thirty-six hours grace, by which point they had
0: pretty much locked down the peninsula. Yeah, and which, these are people who have like gone into like. Government buildings and you know these these little green men were basically just like soldiers who infiltrated the Ukrainian government. uh, Yeah, but it's not just
2: that. I mean, they also there were. I mean, actually, the irony is there were more Ukrainian troops than Russian on Crimea, even though not all of them were sort of actual combat troops. But the point is also it meant that the Russians could basically take up positions, commanding positions, bottling up all the various Ukrainian elements quickly enough but see at the same time as this was happening you also had again as part of the whole diversionary tactics local quote-unquote self-defense volunteers being mobilized who were on the whole genuine locals it's just that in many cases they happen to be for example figures from local organized crime groupings who were coming out, who were basically playing the part of concerned local citizens who are just trying to defend their peninsula against what they call a coup from from, going on in Kiev or whatever. Interestingly, a lot of these thugs turn out to have surprisingly advanced and brand new and shiny weapons. When they sort of come out, but as I said they—they they, they, you know—they're not really good as fighting elements. But what they are is they precisely—they create the illusion that this is a genuine local rising that maybe just has a little bit of help from the Russians, rather than well really what it was was a Russian coup d'etat to take take the peninsula, which they did supremely effectively. I mean, one has to recognise just how efficiently and well they did it. But of course, at the same time, we also have to recognise the degree to which. These were the perfect conditions. I mean, in in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of the previous Yanukovych government in Ukraine, basically chaos reigned. The military chain of command was, if not broken, at least looking very, very fragile. The government didn't really know what to do. And in fact, its Western partners were advising it to be cool and not immediately try to take back the peninsula. So, you know, in these circumstances, when you're also, you know, taking a peninsula where you've already got your best troops, where you already have a large level of local support, in a way, one could not imagine more propitious circumstances. But still, one has to recognize also that this was a textbook special forces operation.
0: Yeah. and. It, it should be noted, too, that, that Putin's, when he took Crimea, it was incredibly popular in Russia. Uh, you write about, I think, being in Moscow and like people were, you know, waving flags and, and maybe shooting off fireworks and celebrating. Talk about really at this point in 2014, you know, we started with 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 Chechnya and how how these wars have progressed up through Crimea. You know, how have things changed for Putin by the point he takes Crimea?
2: I mean, this is in many ways kind of a high point. Look, in the early days, I mean, actually, although Putin from the beginning, shall I say, marketed himself as the sort of tough defender of Russian interests, that was much, much less important to most Russians than the fact that actually his, you know, the two thousands were years of plenty. Energy prices, global energy prices were high, and therefore, uh, an oil and gas exporting country like Russia had the money. And so, yes, Putin can dump a lot of money into military reform. And he can also turn a blind eye as his cronies embezzle on an industrial scale, which they do. But there's also a lot of money left over. And frankly, Russians lived better than they had at any point in in living memory. So this is the point when Russians sort of, you know, they got their their apartments and they were able to actually enjoy consumerism. And they begin to travel a bit and be able to do some tourism and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, Putin was pretty popular then. But of course, any politician knows that being effective yesterday does not necessarily ensure that they're going to support you tomorrow. And and I think, you know, as we began to see, you know, Putin began to lose some of his luster because also a key element of his uh, appeal had been that he kind of in some ways brought back stability after the chaos of the 1990s, which was a period of, you know, massive, not just uncertainty in people's lives, but misery, violence on the streets, you name it. And, you know, Putin did bring back a degree of, you know, law and order and stability and predictability. But this was beginning to decline. When he returned to the presidency after his period sort of as prime minister, which he did just simply to get around the term limits of the constitution, uh, he was met with, with protests in Moscow. You know, people were really thinking, actually, no, you know, you've we appreciate what you've done, but your time is not necessarily still around now. Crimea changed all that for a while. All of a sudden, you know, it, it, it was that actually, you know, the things that Putin was saying about the, the need to assert and defend Russia's interests seemed to come true. You know, Ukraine's falls into chaos, but it doesn't matter because Crimea is now back Russian. And what's more, it's done almost bloodlessly. It's just... There's no more than five deaths in the entire takeover, and at least one of those was self-inflicted. You know, it, it, it seems to have been a sort of a perfect example of power projection on the cheap that has now brought, brought this territory back, back home, as I said. So, yeah, it was tremendously popular. I mean, the, 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 the uh, evening of the day in which the uh, thoroughly rigged uh, referendum in Crimea to want to join Russia, Came through, I scarcely got a wink of sleep because I had an apartment which was on one of the big ring roads in Moscow. And exactly all night long, people were sort of, you know, driving in convoy round, blowing their horns, cheering, waving flags, and such like this. Is, this is not something that the Kremlin had orchestrated, this was a genuine outflow. The point is, though, that I think from Putin's point of view, he, he drew some rather inaccurate conclusions. So first of all, he thought that this, this popularity bump would last, which clearly it doesn't. You know, everyone's enthusiastic today, but then what? Secondly, I think that he, he overgeneralized it. He felt that because Russians were enthusiastic about Crimea, that they would generally be enthusiastic about any assertion of Russian power. And that's, that's clearly demonstrated itself to be false. Crimea was a special case.
0: So talk about, so after Crimea happens, I I mentioned at the beginning of the show that, you know, as me who just, I read the newspaper and, and that's about it. This, this full scale invasion into Ukraine was, it seemed like such a crazy thing and just kind of out of nowhere. But uh, talk about from Crimea leading up to 2021, you know, what should people have been so surprised? at the Ukrainian, at the invasion of Ukraine? What, what was the buildup there?
2: Well, I mean, I, I should hold my hand up beforehand and say, look, until about a week before the invasion, I thought it was no more than 30 to 40% likely because it did not make sense. And I'll come to quite why. But yes, I mean, in, in, in terms of the progression, look, human beings are great engines of pattern recognition, sometimes where no pattern exists. So we have a tendency to think, well, he invades in 2022, he seizes Crimea in 2014, we should be able to draw a nice, neat, straight line. It's not like that. When he takes Crimea, he has no plans to do anything else beyond that. This is just about Crimea. But in some ways, because it's just so easy and so straightforward, it it kind of creates its own momentum. Oh, we've got away with that. What else could we get away with? More to the point, at the same time, a whole bunch of other sort of agents and actors... Are themselves muscling in to a sort of a rising tension in southeastern Ukraine in the so-called Donbass region, which has a you know large population of Russian-speaking Ukrainians. They're Ukrainian citizens, but nonetheless, you know they they have a lot of family ties and everything else across the border with with Russia, and they were not necessarily happy with what had happened in Kiev. They were worried that they were going to face a, a backlash from the Ukrainian speakers, all that kind of thing and you know there are people who want to try and basically capitalize on this and the thing is you know again we have a sense of the putin regime as being something that's incredibly controlled and disciplined as if it's some kind of modern equivalent of a sort of bond villain specter type organization where sort of putin sits there giving instructions in fact it's a lot more chaotic and putin is a lot more lazy and often he's kind of he's willing to give people a certain amount of lee- free leeway without actually committing just to see what happens and you know he he's willing to basically allow allow the sort of those figures who are trying to basically stir up a, a, a rising a mutiny in the Donbass until he more or less feels that he's committed to it. It's a sunk cost fallacy that you sort of think after a certain point you think well I can't really let this go when in fact it looks like the Ukrainian forces which have kind of got their act together are going to be in a position to retake control against these various sort of rebel groups. He feels, no, I can't allow that to happen. And in summer of 2014, we see Russian forces being sort of deployed, in denied, but deployed to actually sort of basically stop that from happening. So you have this conflict that rolls on from 2014 onwards. And... This is not really about the Donbass. Putin doesn't care about the Donbass. This is just simply about a way of trying to cause trouble for Kyiv, to try and teach Kyiv a lesson and get them to think, as Putin would see it, that they must realize that actually their destiny is to be part of Russia's sphere of influence. So stop all this messing around with the West, come back into the fold and recognize your place, which the Ukrainians clearly were not willing to do. But nonetheless, it means you know you have this this rolling undeclared conflict, and I think again after a certain point, Putin comes to think, well, no, this is this is not acceptable. I mean, I, I
0: either win or I lose. Everything's been so easy for him up to this point as yeah, well. Yeah,
2: exactly. And and look, Putin. I mean, he clearly has an extraordinary blind spot when it comes to Ukraine. He does not believe Ukraine is a real country. He thinks of it more as a sort of annex to Russia. Historically, it's a very kind of complex relationship. Um, but nonetheless, you know, he doesn't think Ukraine's a real country. He doesn't think the Ukrainians are a real people. And he clearly doesn't actually think that if push comes to shove, they'll be willing to fight. And he convinces himself of that. And look, this it may well prove that this you know will have been the first COVID war, shall we say. Because clearly the COVID era sees him go into very deep isolation, the circle of people around him, which have been shrinking anyway and becoming more and more people who are ideologically the same as him and just general yes-men. But it shrinks much more dramatically. And he comes out of that seemingly sort of convinced that basically his legacy is dependent on breaking Ukraine's will to continue to defy Moscow. And you have from, well, basically sort of, a, a process from about 2021, spring 2021, a steady build-up of troops on Ukraine's borders. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he planned to invade. Because here's the irony. Right up to the point when he actually launches his invasion, Putin was winning. He had this huge force on Ukraine's borders. These troops were on Russian or Bielorussian territory. But nonetheless, under the shadow of Russian guns, investors were fleeing Ukraine. The Ukrainian economy was tanking. And the West was worried about the risk of war. So you had a constant stream of high-profile visitors going to Moscow, putting Putin in exactly the position he likes to be, one of centrality where you know, the supplicants come and beg something from him. And some European countries, uh, I'll spare their blushes by not naming them, but you know, we're clearly putting quite a lot of pressure on Kiev to make some concessions to Moscow just to make the threat of war go away. So, you know, if Putin really had been this geopolitical mastermind, we're sometimes told, he would have let that continue. But I think in part he was impatient. But also, look, he again didn't believe that Ukraine would resist. see, up to now, his secret has always been to pick easy fights. And this is why I was so perplexed about the prospect of war. Because I think, surely, surely he can't be so stupid. As to think that a country of more than 40 million people, a country that spent the last eight years expecting and preparing for a Russian invasion, you can't think this is going to be a pushover. But the irony is that the very people who were most bullish about the fact that the Russians would invade, you know, and that's particularly we're obviously particularly talking about the sort of American think tank close to the government sort of community, were also the ones who seem to be most bullish that two weeks and it'll all be over. Which is clearly what, what Putin was thinking. He thought that basically he could roll in. They could quickly seize Kiev. President Zelensky of Ukraine would either flee or be arrested or be killed. A new puppet government could be installed. Yeah, there'll be some, there'll be some trouble. There's a whole few holdouts that have to be eliminated. There'll be some protests. And it's worth noting that a large proportion of that initial invasion force were not actually troops, but National Guard. Sort of paramilitary security forces, riot, you know, glorified riot police, precisely because that's what he thought he would face: riots, not warfare. But basically, he too seemed to have thought that two three weeks and basically it'll be a done deal. So, you know, from my point of view, I was thinking Putin wouldn't invade because it would be a hard fight. Putin ultimately invaded because, as far as he, you know, he he was he convinced himself, and no one was willing to disabuse him of this view, that it would be easy.
0: And therefore, almost, why wouldn't you invade in that case? Yeah, well, and you know, I think that what I think it's fair to say that post-invasion things have gone badly um, for for Russia. But frankly, it's it's for me and well, for everybody, it's it's uh, hard to get news about how things are actually going. A question I've got for you is as a, a Russia expert is how bad are things right now? How how much has Putin's popularity dropped? Here we are in April 2023. How many, what, what's the casualty count even on the Russian side?
2: Of course, I mean, we don't really know for sure. The best kind of estimates we've got are that the casualty count, which obviously is both dead and wounded, between 180 and 220,000 which is obviously you know, appalling if one thinks of the soviet war in, in afghanistan for example in 10 years they lost just about 15 and a half thousand troops and you know russia a smaller country than the soviet union has lost this many but of course the ukrainians have also been taking a lot of casualties as well you know if we accept this sort of, again the 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 generally sort of distributed figures then proportionate to population Remember, Russia is more than three times the size of Ukraine. Well, proportionate to population, the Ukrainians are suffering heavier losses, even though in absolute terms, they're they're more like maybe 120 to 150 thousand. So, I mean, in you know, in that context, it, it it's it's pretty bad. The striking thing is the degree to which actually Russia is is at the moment able to sustain this war effort after a fashion, both in terms of the battlefield, even though they're increasingly pulling. 20, 30, 40-year-old tanks out of uh, you know, mothballs in order to be deployed, but also at home. And, and the real answer is this. What we have is a case of an authoritarianism that is beginning to move towards a totalitarianism. You know, Putin still has control over the security apparatus. There are a lot of Russians who are deeply opposed to this war. But on the other hand, and, and indeed you know, tens of thousands of them have come out to protest, even though they pretty much know for sure that if they're lucky, they'll be arrested and fined. If they're unlucky, they'll be beaten or worse. But nonetheless, they they did it. But for most, they feel that this is futile. I mean, let's be honest, most of us are not heroes. Most of us are not willing to go out and know that the riot police will trunch us down, but think, well, that's the right thing to do. But what it does mean is that although on the surface, the Russian system is actually coping surprisingly well, you know, GDP is relatively stable, you know, they're, they're suffering. Average real wages have dropped by about 1%. Noticeable, but again, not catastrophic. But behind, beneath that, I think there are real signs of strain on the system. And in particular, kind of a hollowing out of the regime. So after all, Putin basically depended on three key assets. One was legitimacy, the degree to which Russians actually did. They may not like him, but nonetheless, they accepted the legitimacy of his rule and they thought that he knew what he was doing. Well, that's increasingly declining. I mean, very roughly speaking, we've probably got about a quarter of Russians who are still supportive of the war a quarter who are actively hostile towards it, and a half who don't know what the hell they believe, but would rather just keep their heads down and not have an opinion. So, you know, one way of thinking that is only a quarter disapprove of the war, but I think actually more relevant is to say they're only a quarter as, are supportive. So legitimacy is declining. His second key asset was the capacity to throw large amounts of money at particular problems when they arose. Well, what we're actually seeing is under the pressure of the war and of sanctions. Actually, the available res- reserves are shrinking very rapidly. So he's not going to be in that position. I mean, like take the very specific example: the Russian car industry. It's been kept afloat thanks to lots of subsidies. It's not producing cars that anyone really wants to buy. I mean, they now have these special edition, which means they have no airbags or you know uh, advanced braking right? systems or whatever. Yeah, because they can't mm-hmm. access them. So yeah. you know, again, you know, in, in good marketing speak. What they're actually saying is, well, we we, we now have 1990s vintage cars for you, but we'll call them special edition.
0: Wow. You
2: know, but but the point is, so people may not want to buy these cars, but the point is they have to keep the industries going in order to prevent mass unemployment. So, you know, the money is is coming under pressure. And the third element is the, the security apparatus. And even here, we're beginning to see some tensions. There are people who feel that Putin has taken the wrong turn. But there's also the so-called turbo patriots who didn't have a problem with invading Ukraine. They have a problem with it being done so damn badly. And the incompetence, the amateurishness, the corruption that has been evident as a result. And so you know, many of them are coming to think that it's patriotic to be anti-Putin. Now, put that lot together. In and of itself, it's not going to bring Putin down. But what it does mean is when there is some kind of systemic crisis, and there will be at some point, at some point, the black swan will fly over you and, you know, there'll be a collapse of the front lines in Ukraine or a cascading economic crisis or serious illness by Putin that they can't cover up or whatever. When that kind of a crisis happens, I think that's when the the regime will be demonstrated to be actually have much, much less capacity than it really looks like it has particularly because so many in the elite are deeply dissatisfied they're not putinists they're kleptocrats and opportunists they supported putin because basically then they could steal and live great lives well now that there's less money there's more risk and you can't go and enjoy, you can't buy your nice penthouse in London and send your kids to an American university and anchor your yacht off the South of France and send your mistress shopping in Milan and do all these other fun things. You know, they did not sign up
0: to become North Korea 2.0. So if you had to put a number, I don't even know if this is possible, but you know, we'll say like when Putin, uh, after he invaded Crimea, he became very popular in Russia. If, Maybe his popular if you were going to put like a, a poll number, like maybe 90 percent popularity or something at that point, where we're at now, what would you put a number on for his popularity in Russia? Well, here's the interesting thing. There's, there's two numbers we have to look at. There's his approval ratings and his
2: trust ratings. His approval ratings tend always to be pretty high in the 80 percents, the sort of level that frankly, any Western politician would happily sell their granny in order to have. But the trust level is often in the 30 percents. Now that seems to imply that you've got about fifty percent of Russians who approve of someone they don't trust, which looks weird. The one is the approval rating. Kind of, in some ways, it's almost a mark of patriotism. It's Putin has been in power for twenty three years. For for many people, they they don't really rem- they can scarcely remember a pre-Putin era. So the approval rating is just almost just simply a way of saying I'm happy with the fact that I'm a Russian and such like. The trust rating is actually a much Better index of where Putin really stands, particularly because we find that the United Russia Party, which is his main kind of the main pro Putin party, tends to get very similar results to Putin's trust ratings. Now, the thing is that what we saw is after Crimea, we saw greater convergence between approval and trust. So actually, you know, that that was a pretty good sign that there was genuine support for him. What we're now seeing is actually an increasing opening of that gap, that, you know, his, his approval ratings still roll along. But then again, you know, who, when they're asked a question by a person with a clipboard, is going to say, Putin, oh, I hate him. But his trust ratings continue to slide further and further down. So now we're, I don't know, it's very hard to tell. But again, we're probably around that kind of 25 percent who, broadly speaking, approve of Putin. The problem is there is no one else, you know, the, the, I mean, and, and frankly, that's why people are more likely to be kind of
0: turned off politics than actively support someone else. So you would say that most Russians sitting around the dinner table know, you know, they're not being asked by a reporter or anything. Most Russians don't, they they have real concerns about the way their, their country is being run.
2: Yeah, exactly. and And it tends to manifest itself not so much in I hate that damn Putin, not least because that's a dangerous thing, but rather in terms of grumbles and complaints about specific things. And above all, again, in terms of s- such polling as is, is being done, demonstrates much, much greater concern about the long term. In you know, other words, people don't feel that the trajectory is, is a good trajectory. And so actually, yeah, they, they'll, they'll complain about their local mayor or their local governor rather than Putin because it's safer and because this person's closer. But actually, they're talking about the system. And I think concerns about corruption, concerns about the sort of widening gap between the haves and the have-nots, all of these things are, are becoming increasingly evident. And there is even still protest. I mean, the, 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 all the sort of the high-profile opposition leaders have been either pushed into exile or put in prison. There is no sort of national opposition. But again, although it doesn't tend to get much, much attention, there's still a lot of local protest and agitation at very, very local issues, because that's kind of safer. If you say, down with Putin, before you know it, you have been sort of swept up into a police wagon and, you know, face face prison. But there's still just a little bit of space that you can complain about why this, you know, road that was meant to be built hasn't been built, why that environmental problem hasn't been addressed. You know, there is clearly signs that Russians... For all the myths that Russians are these kind of bovine figures who happily just accept whatever is thrown at them. No, Russians are still complaining. And when they can, they're still protesting.
0: Well, in terms of the way the, the war is being waged right now, you have a chapter in your book um, that, that you title Ukraine 2022, Putin's last war with a question mark uh, at the end. Explain that and then maybe talk about your your predictions and for where things go from here. I mean, I don't think that
2: uh, Putin is going to be in a position to have another war in him, because I don't think he's really going to have much of a military. I mean, because of the sort of a series of catastrophic blunders, Sort of catastrophic seems to be my word of the day, which is so singularly appropriate in the context but anyway, because of that it, you know it's so much of the best of Russian kit and Russian troops were squandered in the early weeks and couple of months of the war and although yes Russia now has still a large military, it's mobilized three hundred thousand reservists and so forth but in terms of the quality of the force it's 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 seen a dramatic decline, and it's going to take at least a decade, I would say, to reconstitute Russian forces to the level they were in January 2022. And that's assuming that Russia is willing and able to pay what it's going to cost, not so much in money, but in terms of industrial capacity. And it also presupposes that Russia will, for example, get the microchips it needs and all the other sort of basic ingredients. So first of all, I think the, the, basically, you know, whatever happens with this war, Putin is not going to be in a position to threaten NATO or, or, or almost anyone else. Secondly, though, politically, this has been a major blunder. I almost so catastrophic again. There you go. In the sense that, look, Putin had made assumptions about Ukraine and built a whole strategy around that. And Putin continues to try and micromanage this war in terms of personnel decisions, in terms of you know what can be done. I mean, if one takes, for example, the case of the city of Kherson, which the Russians took, but was actually pretty much impossible to hold. Well, we know that weeks or months, Russia's generals had been begging Putin to allow them to withdraw because frankly, they were just simply getting hammered by long-range artillery and could do nothing about it. And again, it took him a long time to be willing to actually allow them to do that, frankly, rational uh, with- withdrawal. So you know, I think you know, th- this is a very different war from all the other ones. It's much, much larger. It was clearly badly conceived, badly executed, and it's one in which actually Putin involved himself much more personally than in any of the other conflicts. And I think that's really important because of the political damage that it does him. I mean, he likes playing the political, uh, historical comparisons game, and at times he compares himself with people like Peter the Great and whatever, these, you know, state building colossi of Russian history. Well, increasingly, he's looking more like the very last Tsar, Nicholas II, who incautiously identified himself with Russia's involvement in the Second World War First World War by making himself commander in chief and who clearly had nothing to offer because he had you know he had basically the same amount amount of kind of military expertise as the mug from which I'm drinking tea and all he could really offer was just well one more push one more offensive and we'll be in a better position to dictate peace terms well Putin doesn't seem to have any strategy beyond hold on and eventually Western unity will fragment. They'll stop supporting the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians will be forced to make some kind of an ugly deal with us. Now, it's possible that that might happen. But the point is, there's very little evidence to to base your entire strategy around that. And yet that's all he's got. That's all he can offer. So I I think from, from this point of view, I think it's Putin's last war. Firstly, because it may well be that it contributes to his fall his downfall. We'll have to see just how badly things go. Secondly, because even if he's still around, I think he's going to have much less capacity, to, you know, political capacity to launch any other conflict. And thirdly, because even if he did want to, he's not really going to have the military to be able to do you know, launch more than, than the, the, the smallest and most limited of, 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 of conflicts.
0: Well, what lessons are you hoping that people take away from your book when they read it?
2: I think that, really, I think it's, it's it's to get a sense of quite what military power and war fighting meant to Putin, and still means to Putin in terms of his vision of, of Russia. It's also, I think, something that I, if I can insert an entirely gratuitous publicity moment, that I talk about in depth in my book, The Weaponization of Everything, which is actually in the modern world, shooting wars have become vastly less predictable, more expensive and more dangerous to launch. As I said, I mean, you know, while he was fighting a a non-military war with Ukraine, he was winning. It's actually as soon as he turned it into a shooting war that he started suffering serious losses. So I think it's also, you might say, a case study for how someone who doesn't really understand warfare and the military, remember, this is a man with no meaningful military experience himself, you know, someone who doesn't really understand war fighting, and particularly doesn't understand how it's changing in the 21st century, can so disastrously blunder, not just in terms of the sort of plan, you know, why fighting a war, but how to fight the war. And I think that's again sort of one of the more sort of generalizable things. Russia had had reformed its military really quite effectively, but it had reformed it to fight a different war. And in fact, having reformed itself away from this kind of big war scenario, it then found itself fighting that. How often do countries essentially build a military with one particular type of conflict in mind and then suddenly find, oops, we're actually going to have to use the military we've got to to fight a very different conflict? This is one more case study of that.
0: Well, Mark, this has been uh, a really insightful interview and super interesting answers you've given to my questions. So thank you for that. Kind of lastly here, so you've I mentioned at the beginning you've written 25 other books. Maybe this is 26. What are you working on next?
2: I I mean, I've got a book that's currently with, with the publishers, which has nothing to do with anything military. It's essentially a history of the world told through the prism of organized crime kind of tentatively titled Homo criminalis. But in in terms of this sort of area, I'm working on a sort of follow-on for Osprey, which again is tentatively titled Forged in War, which is essentially a military history of Russia from the very, very beginnings, when warless Russia was kind of created through invasion, through Viking invasion, all the way through to the present day, and very much tries to sort of assess the degree to which Insta- not, not so much instability, but actually insecurity has been at the center of Russian leaders, it doesn't matter if they're czars or commissars, understandings of their position. And in a way, that has shaped Russia's history in terms of being an authoritarian regime, being aggressive, being you know, feeling the need to push its boundaries outwards constantly You know, in that sense of, well, next time we'll be able to put ourselves in a position in which we feel secure. So it's an attempt to, put, to do a very, very big picture notion of what's going to happen.
0: Wonderful. Well, uh, I hope you'll come back on the show when you when you publish that book. I mean, 25 is very impressive. So if you've got another 25 in you, then, you know, maybe we'll have <laughs> several. I'm not sure re- about
2: that. We'll see about <laughs> that. But I'd be <laughs> delighted to come back. Thanks very much indeed
0: for this. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much. Mark, if, if somebody wants to find you or follow you, are you on social media? How can they get in touch? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who
2: isn't these days? Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Mark Gagliotti. Uh, I have a blog called In Moscow Shadows, and I also have a podcast, kind of weekly, also called
0: In Moscow Shadows. Oh, wonderful. Well, Mark Galliotti, Putin's wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Go buy a copy. Go check it out from your library really informative and a a terrific read. Mark, thank you so much for your time today.
2: My pleasure. Good to talk to you.